0: Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy, expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, Looking today at Psalm 83, and that they may know, will you please join me now in prayer. Lord, as we come now to this great chapter of Psalms, we are so thankful that it is in your word. And you have so much to teach us about your character through this psalm, about your justice, about your love, about the greatness of the beauty and the glory of Christ. So, Lord, as we marvel, as we learn, as we're instructed from your word from this psalm, about your person, about the character of Christ, about, about what you want to teach us from this text today, Lord, we are so thankful that you are a God who is unchanging and that you are a God who has come near in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And we're reminded even now, Lord, we are in such a great need of Christ. We have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for our need. So, Lord, as we look at this uh, text today, I pray that, that we would posture our hearts under your word. This is your word. This is not Dave Jenkins' word. This is not anyone else's word. This is God's word. And so, Lord, may we be reminded as we approach the word of God that we are to submit to it even as we test what we hear from your word against it as the teacher teaches it. So, Lord, help us to have a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness found in Christ alone. Help me to explain these things clearly and boldly and in a way that's easy to understand help us lord to take home the message of this psalm help us to be even confronted where we're prideful help us to be comforted where we're struggling and afflicted thank you lord in every way you meet our needs you meet us through your word and your spirit carries it into our hearts and into our lives bringing change in all of life thank you lord for your word thank you lord that you use the faithful teaching of your word Help bless, Lord, the, the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open it, to open them, I should say, to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gabel and Amnon and Amalek and Philistine with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian. As to Seiria and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalina, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As the fire consumes the forest, as the flames set the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fail their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth this is the reading of god's holy precious word you know the book of psalms is unique in all the biblical literature not because of its poetic content but because of how the psalter is organized the psalter is organized traditionally into five books psalms begins with 41 poems attributed to king david on a wide variety of subjects And after the opening couplet of Psalm 40 through 42 through 43, Book 2 introduces nine psalms attributed to the sons of Korah, highlighting God's sovereign, mighty reign. 21 more psalms from David conclude the second book with one from Solomon. Book 3 features the Asaph collection. 11 psalms focused on the theme of divine judgment, and more psalms from the sons of Korah. Book four contains mainly anonymous uh, psalms written for public worship. Book five includes the well-loved psalms of ascent in Psalm 121 through Psalm 134, and many others focused on thanksgiving and praise. Now, the Psalms attributed to Asaph, they describe events separated by centuries. And so these poems were probably authored by the original Asaph and his successor in the office of the chief singer, according to 1 Chronicles 16.5. Uh, in fact, Psalm 83 was possibly written by Jehaziel, a descendant of Asaph, who served as a Levite <coughs> under King Jehoshaphat, according to 2 Chronicles 20, verse fourteen. And taken together so far, the Asaph collection has offered valuable insight on God as a defender of his people and the judge of evil. Psalm 73 taught us not to envy the wicked since we remember the condemnation that we face. Psalm 74 reminds us that we are to pray to the Creator God, whose power is infinite to save and to judge. Psalm 75 recalls that there is a cup of judgment for all the wicked to drink. In Psalm 75, verse 10, the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Psalm 78 look back on the great events of the Exodus and even David's reign, reminding us of God's past judgment on Israel's foes. Even the theme of looking to the biblical past for the hope of salvation, it lies at the heart of this Psalm, Psalm 83. The writer Asaph is so certain of divine intervention that his concern is going to shift to a desire for the honor and glory of God's alone. You see, God's word, it should produce that same transformation in our lives, that same hunger and thirst. Psalmist prays for judgment in Psalm eighty-three, eighteen, which says that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So first thing that we're going to see here today is an urgent plea and the reason for the plea, an urgent plea and the reason for the plea. And Psalm 83 begins with yet another desperate plea for the intervention of God in Psalm 83, verse one, which says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. Now this cry, it gives the impression that God has allowed a dangerous situation to ripen and that his people are becoming desperate for him to act. Now scripture often shows God is waiting to act in this way as when the people of Israel stood with their backs to the Red Sea and the Egyptian chariots were bearing down before God made a lane for them through the waters. John Calvin says this, It is unquestionably our duty to wait patiently when God at any time delays his help, but in condensation to our infirmity, he permits us to supplicate him to make haste. The Irishman Edmund Burke served in the English House of Commons in the late 18th century, and while he wrote many influential essays and speeches, his most famous words are recorded only in the writing of others. Most notably, Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Well, what Psalm 83 reminds us of is that all the things that good men may do in times of crisis, none is more important than prayer. When the forces of unbelief and ungodliness have united to drive out Christian faith, God's people cry out to him as in verse 1, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. Now, Psalm 83 was written in a desperate time when evil was seemingly to triumph. Can anybody relate to that today? The enemies of God's people had risen up, banded together, conspired for the destruction of Israel. Verse 2 cries out, For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Unlike some psalms which deal with evil in general, this psalm concerns a crisis in which the enemies of Israel have summoned their strength in a confident expectation of victory. Now, more than this, the wicked have laid crafty plans against the people of God. This onslaught involved a clever and even a devious strategy against the truth of God and against the church of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 says, They consult together against your treasured ones. Now, we need to be clear about this. Christians should not be surprised when a devious plan is hatched by the advocates of unbelief. Just as Satan is a deceiver, so also the enemies of the gospel delight in deceptive schemes against the truth. In 302 AD, the joint rulers of the Roman Empire, Diocletian and Galerius, met to discuss the growing political power of Christians diocletian initially favored moderation but galerius called for extermination the two men consulted the oracle of apollo hearing back that the gods could not speak until the just on the earth that is the christians were eliminated on that basis plans were hatched with no warning the order was given on february 23rd 303 the feast of the pagan god termalia to burn the newly built christian church in niomedaea Now, the next day, Diocletian issued an edict calling for the burning of all churches and all the scriptures, the removal of Christians from public office, and the abolition of Christian worship. He even followed up with other edicts calling for the arrest of all clergy, a requirement that that Christians offer sacrifices to pagan gods, and finally, the torture and even execution of thousands of Christians who refused to worship idols. The church thus suffered under a cleverly concealed and orchestrated plan designed to eradicate Christianity from the empire. Christians today should not be surprised when secular and even pagan forces engage in deceitful strategies to wage war on the gospel. Of These strategies involve claims for tolerance while unbelievers are in the minority, leading to the most strident intolerance of Christianity when they hold the majority. These cunning plans they involve a biased media, dishonest political candidates, and the misleading promotion of immoral behavior through entertainment and the arts. Now it's important for us to note that the aim of these enemies of the gospel, both in the time of the Psalmist and of today, as we see in Psalm eighty three verse four, they say come, let us wipe them out as a nation. And so the aim of the enemy is the extermination of the Christian faith and the elimination of the church. Most importantly is the removal of the word of God and its restraining influence on the reign of sin. It was precisely because God's people held forth the light of his word that their enemies cried out in verse 4 of our psalm today, let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Now, you might think, man, this sounds so much like our day. And you're exactly right. But it's much worse than you would ever think. And in fact, we're living in times much like that of Romans 1. In Romans 1, we we see the the creator-creature distinction. We know from Genesis 1 that the Lord made everything, and he saw that it was good. The problem is we live in in a Genesis 3 world. You know, we, we, we are sinners by nature and by choice as a result of what happened in Genesis 3. And yet, even in the midst of Genesis 3, in Genesis 3.15, it says that he would send one to crush the head of the serpent. That is the proto-evangelium. That is the first gospel was given. And we know what Christ did. In fact, when Christ said in John 19.30, it is finished, It was signed and sealed and delivered in the blood of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Matthew one twenty one very clearly says that the reason that Jesus came was to die, to die. That is to say that the very purpose of the incarnation was that Jesus came under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for our sins in our place and for our sin. As as First Corinthians fifteen one through eight very clearly tells us that, that Jesus had to die, and that Jesus had to be buried, and that Jesus had to rise, and Jesus ascended, and he appeared to many witnesses. And yet we live in the also in this Romans one world where where we have the creator, but we are the we are the creature. And this is Paul's point that the creature suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. That is, we rebel against the authority of God who made us in His image and likeness as we see in Genesis chapter 1. We thumb our nose at our Creator. He, after all, our Creator is the one who made us. He fashioned us in our mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says. And yet we thumb our nose at Him. This is happening all over the place, even in the professing evangelical world today. You have people who are actively trying to promote... And and remove any mention of sexual sin from the Bible, and they've been doing it for the last fifty years. They want to remove the parts about homosexuality from the Bible, or they are actively retranslating those those parts of the Bible and saying that that's not what it means. Or they want to redefine what a man is and a woman is, even though God is clear: this a man is a man and a woman is a woman and he made them and he saw that it was good God's word could not be any clearer on the subject and God's word couldn't be clearer on the subject of what marriage is it's between one man and one woman for life under God, period that means that anything outside of that dishonors God but this is where we come where we as the creature we want it we want, it, we want to be in charge well, I say no god, you're that that's that's not true. That's not true. Or or we'll say people argue, you know what? That's just just keep that in your home. Just keep those ideas in your home. Those are an antiquated ideas you might hear in our day. Or you know what? That those values, those were of a bygone time. But but what are we, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about just some book. Like a book gets published seemingly, or 10 gets published every second these days, maybe even more than that. We're talking about the word of God. We're talking about the reliable. We're talking about the trustworthy. We're talking about the clear. We're talking about the, the without error, without the possibility of error, binding word of God. That, that reveals the character and the majesty and the beauty of God himself. And, and it tells us from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation and everywhere in between, it tells us about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. There's no other way to know God, to know the character of God, the attributes of God, the beauty of God, the honor of God, how we live are to live before the face of God always. To know how to be saved. And so much more. There's no other way to know that other than to know it as it's revealed in the Word. And yet, in this in this world, there's going to be people, and there are people, who directly oppose biblical Christianity because they want to redefine religion as being all about them. They want to define their own truth. They want to have their own theology. They want to have their own philosophy. They want to have their own worldview. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 1. It's the love of self. It's the love of self. What we have to understand is that that's the battleground. Everything... We need to understand that what Satan wants to do is he does everything, everything that Satan does. It's to counteract what God has already done. What God has already said will come to pass. All false theology, lies, deception, false philosophies, ideologies, they come and emanate from one place revelation 9 tells us they come from the pit of abyss they come from hell itself that's where false teachers come from that's where false ideologies come from and they raise their head against the knowledge of god as he has defined himself in his word this is why you know second corinthians 10 5 tells us that we are to to destroy every argument that raises itself against the knowledge of God. We are to stand fast on the word of God. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians fifteen two, to stand. And when you've done all, you can stand. Why do we stand? We stand because of our sufficient, totally and utterly sufficient Savior and King, Jesus Christ. We stand in Christ because Christ is enough and he always will be, period, end of sentence. Don't add anything to it. We are saved by Christ and for Christ, for the honor of Christ, to the glory of God alone. That is to say, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yet out there in our world, like men like Diocletian and and galerius abound the battle lines are clear we have to stand on the word of god and we have to proclaim the word of god in season and out of season for the glory of god there's no other way for sinners to be saved there's no other name under heaven to be saved there's none we must proclaim We must faithfully proclaim and then trust as we do proclaim the spirit to open eyes, to open ears, and to raise the dead to new life in the name of Christ through the spirit of God, that they might be adopted by God and loved by God, not because of our message, but because of Christ and the beauty of God in Christ alone. Well, we need to move on here. The second point that I have for you is an encircling conspiracy in addition to facing a, a cunning uprising of evil, Israel was beset with a staggering confederation of nations. Verses 5-8 through eight of our text say this, For they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gabil and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia with the inhabitants of Ty- Tyre. Asher has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. This, this list here, it starts with the Edomites, who were the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, as were the Amalekites, together with the Ishmaelites, who descended from Abraham's son by the, by the servant of Hagar. Perhaps related to them were the Hagites, together with the unknown people of Gabel. Added in there were the Moabites, who were the descendants of Abraham's nephew Lot, as were the Ammonites. All these confederates dwelt to the east or the northeast of Israel other enemies were located to the west in the northwest the philistines and the merchant uh, city of Tyre. last came the assyrians who had rise to such astonishing power in the 8th century but who at this time are are cited as mere hired mercenaries verse 8 says the strong arm of the children of lot this concluding statement indicates that the confederation was led by the moabites and the ammonites who descended from lot now, the Confederation Against the Israelites, it shows how opposition to God and his people will unite enemies who would otherwise have no mutual interest. William Plummer writes, In opposing God's cause and people, the wicked are ever unanimous. The chief example of this, unlike the alliance of the Jewish priests and the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in the crucifixion of our King Jesus. Now, we see similar unlikely unions today as social progressives in America. They show sympathy for and even make common cause with the socially regressive Islamic groups. It's hard to see how one group that champions women's rights can so fervently join with a religion that brutalizes women until you realize that they have a shared cause in opposing Christianity and the word of God. And the source of this unifying opposition to God can be seen in the same chapter that records the fall of Adam into sin. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. As a result, all unbelieving peoples are under the dominion of the devil. As Ephesians 2.1 says, they share a hatred for the church, which is the godly offspring united to the Savior, Son, and King, Jesus Christ. This history of enmity shows that while salvation does not run through bloodlines, hatred of God most certainly does. And a second feature of this conspiracy is how many of the tribes are related to the people of Israel. There ought to have been fellowship between these cousins, but instead their hatred was most bitter. In fact, today we find that some of the most eager opponents of biblical Christianity are the children of missionaries and pastors. Those who have a fleshly but not a spiritual relationship to the church and who turned away to ungodliness are often the most spiteful in attacking the gospel. John Calvin writes that it is, as it were, the destiny of the church not only to be assailed by external enemies to suffer far greater trouble at the hands of false brethren. The question is raised as to when this confederation rose against Israel. The best historical answer is to associate this psalm with the mass assault in the time of Jehoshaphat recorded in 2 Chronicles 20. There the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites are listed in 2 Chronicles 21-2, through although other nations are not mentioned. It could be that they sent smaller forces that either were hired or simply are not mentioned by the chronicler. If this was the occasion, it's interesting that a descendant of Asaph named Jehaziel is listed as leading the singers and going forth before Israel's army in Second Chronicles twenty fourteen through 21 Psalm 83 might have been written for this crisis in which God gave a victory by His mighty power to His singing and even to His praying people. Another view holds that since the entirety of this confederation is ne- never listed in the word of God, the psalmist provides a poetic idealization of how God's people are often surrounded by hostile forces in the world. Applying the conspiracy of Psalm 83 as a general principle, George Horn comments, the acts are changed and the scenes are shifted, but the stage in the drama continues the same. Next, let's look at our third point, summing up the doctrine of divine judgment. The second half of Psalm 83 works out the kind of judgment that the psalmist seeks in answer to his prayer. Like other similar psalms, Psalm 83 is criticized as an unedifying and tedious catalog of bloody violence. Subject description, though, fails to connect with the spirit of these prayers. H.C. Leipold writes, On closer inspection, it will be recognized that we have here a normal prayer of an endangered people for which no apologies need to be made. First, the psalmist prays for Israel's enemies to suffer defeat. In verses 9 through 12, it says this, Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Caesarea and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalianana, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Now, the psalmist is drawing from the earlier history of Israel, as recorded in the book of Judges, pointing out what God had previously done and asking him to again judge and defeat Israel's foe. The first instance is the defeat of the Midianites by Gideon and his small band in Judges 6-8. through And in those days, the Israelites were under total pagan domination. But God called Gideon to rally the Israelite militia, When 32,000 gathered, the Lord insisted that these were too many, even against a massively larger enemy host. All who were fearful were told to go home, reducing Gideon's band to 10,000. This number was later reduced to a bare 300, which sneaked up on the Midianites, holding torches and blowing trumpets. It thus was God who delivered the enemy to defeat his own power in Judges 7.15. After Gideon's 300 at pursued Zeba and Zaliana, mentioned in verse 11, that the total enemy's number defeated was 120,000. And so the psalmist prays that a similar divine intervention would destroy the confederation assailing God's people. And just as it might have seemed ridiculous for Gideon to believe God's word by going forth against so great a host with such a paltry earthly power, so, in the psalmist's crisis, and in those we face today, those who trust and obey the Lord can be confident of ultimate success, no matter how strong the opposition seems. Well, another example it involves the defeat of the Canaanite generals, Sisera and Jabin, in Judges 4. Barak was sent by the prophetess Deborah to lead Israel against the mighty chariot forces of the enemy. After Barak's victory, Sisera was slain by the Israelite woman named Jael, who drove a tent peg through his temple as he slept, while Jabin was captured. Like the Midianite princes Oreb and Zib, who were slain by Gideon in Judges 7.25 and Psalm 83.11, Jael and Sisera show God's judgment on the leaders of conspiracies against his people. The Song of Deborah celebrates this general principle of divine judgment in Judges 5.31, which says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. You see, when God judges his enemies by causing their defeat, the destruction they suffer is thorough. And in addition to the two examples from Judges, the psalmist elaborates with examples from nature when he says this in verses 13 through 15. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chap before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. You see, the Lord alone drives chaff away by dust. He consumes forests with fire, terrifies with the storm of the hurricane. He therefore has ample power to scatter and even destroy every foe of his people. Such is the storm and the tempest of God's indignation, which pursues and even terrifies the sacrilegious and the ungodly. God's judgment not only defeats and destroys those who persecute his people, but the end will also bring them to dishonor. In verses 16 through 17, it says, Fill their faces with shame. that they may seek your name, O Lord, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. And so, rebellion against God begins in pride. Psalm 83 thus describes Israel's foes as those who make an uproar, who have raised their heads in verse 2. God's judgment causes those same heads to hang in shame and dismay forever in verse 17. How much better is it to embrace the humility of Christ in the world, perhaps even suffering scorn for the sake of the gospel, than to join in proud rebellion against those who are destined to spend eternity in the confusion of disgrace and hell forever. So let's talk about two parting lessons from these Psalms, these Asaph Psalms. Before we depart from Psalm 83 and the entire collection of the Asaphite Psalms, with their focus on the divine judgment, there are two lessons for us to consider. The first lesson is that the Lord and his people are so joined to that war against the church is to war against God himself. Verse 2 of this psalm says that God should intervene because your enemies make an uproar those who hate you. Verse 3 observes that that the crafty plans were directed against your people, who are then called your treasured ones. Verse 5 of our chapter today warns against, against you they make a covenant, and so the Lord and his people are like a husband and his wife, so that to attack his bride is to raise God's defenses and guarantee his wrath. John Calvin says, It affords us no small ground of confidence that those who are our enemies are also God's enemies. Zechariah 2.8 asserts that, that he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Jesus spoke in a similarly protective way when he confronted Saul on the Damascus Road for persecuting his church. In Acts 9.4 he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Christians, under assault for their faith, whether on a national scale or individually at work, in school, or within a family, may pray to God asking, Lord, they are attacking your beloved. And since God treasures his people, we can be sure that the gospel witness and the eternal destiny of his church are safeguarded by his all-knowing and all-vigilant power. And it was with this privileged relationship in mind that, that when Jehoshaphat faced the mighty confederation that is perhaps identified in Psalm 83, a prophet was sent to him with words of assurance in Second 2 Chronicles 20:15. Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. In answer, not only did the Asphite Psalm, perhaps author Psalm 83, but the Levitical singers also led the army going forth, singing Psalm 118 in Second Chronicles 20:21, 20, which says, "Give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever." James Boyce points out that the realization that attacks on believers are really attacks on God should shape our attitude towards enemies and their judgment. When he says this. If the evil is thought of as being against oneself, then the call is for revenge. But if it is thought of as being against God, then our response is to leave justice in God's hands, and to trust him for whatever he sees fit to do, and we can trust him. God is not indifferent. He says uh, to himself, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and Deuteronomy thirty two thirty five and Romans twelve nineteen. And the final lesson of Psalm eighty three is perhaps the most important. It is a lesson that shows us not only why we should pray for God to judge evil, but how we should pray for God to bring about that divine judgment. Psalm 83 concludes with an emphasis on the glory of God that results when he rises to judge his foes with destruction and shame. Verses 16 through 18 says this, Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are most high over all the earth. This prayer shows the nobility of spirit to which believers are called even in the face of dire threats to their safety. We can understand according to nature how a threatened person may pray for the defeat and even the destruction of his assailant. But only grace can cause that same person to pray mainly for God's name to be known and for his glory to be exalted. And now there are two different ways in which we may see God glorified through a judgment of evil. The first is that by this means God often persuades the wicked to repent and thus judgment leads to their salvation. This seems to be the emphasis of Psalm eighty-three sixteen, where the psalmist prays for enemies' faces to be filled with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. What a remarkable statement to conclude not only this imprecatory psalm, the psalm of judgment, but the entirety of the judgment psalms authored by Asaph. Here is God's grace in action that injured and even threatened believers should still concern themselves with the conversion of the ungodly. This was, of course, the very attitude in the heart of Jesus that led to our salvation from sin. J.J. Stewart Perone writes, The man who loves and fears Jehovah desires to see others, even his enemies, love and fear him too. And thus, while Christians pray for God to judge, we need to remember Jesus' petition on the cross for forgiveness in Luke 23:34, And we need to imitate Stephen's prayer when he suffered the first martyrdom of the church age in Acts 7:60, which says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And as Christians remember the saving aim of our Lord and King on the cross and the dying witness of the first believers, the first prayers that we ought to offer in response to gospel opposing evil are appeals to God's mercy for the conversion of sinners. And the second way that God is glorified in judgment is when his enemies, though still unrepentant, acknowledge him as the true and the mighty God. Paul wrote that in the end, even as the wicked are destroyed in the final judgment, in Philippians 2:10 through 11, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. William Plummer writes, In the end there shall not be found a dog to move his tongue against him. All the earth shall keep silence before him or break forth in hallelujahs at the mention of his name. Earlier, I brought up Galerius, who persuaded the Roman Emperor Diocletian to unleash persecutions seeking to destroy the Christian church. And in the eastern provinces where Galerius reigned, believers in Christ suffered the greatest torment and vast numbers of death. But they showed Galerius a resolve in their faith that he had never imagined. And by 311 AD, even Galerius gave up trying to destroy the church, admitting his failure. Although he had never repented and believed in Christ alone, when he became sick and began to die, he summoned the Christians who had escaped his persecution to come pray for him to their God. In the midst of the judgment for which he faced the wrath of God, yet he gave testimony that Jesus Christ, whose name is the Lord, is the most high over all the earth in Psalm eighty-three, eighteen, And so we're going to look as we conclude today And when God was silent. And as we're talking about Galerius, the church survived against all foes because of the mediatorial kingship of her Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Jesus secures God's favor for the church, and thus God's saving help, together with judgment on her foes by the perfect life and sin-atoning wounds that Jesus bears perpetually for believers in heaven. It was only in his own case, as Jesus suffered on the cross, that a believer's cry failed to rouse God's gracious answer, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27:46, It was only while Jesus, God's son, suffered the hatred of men, but even more importantly, the wrath of God towards our sins, that heaven neglected Psalm 83, God's holding his peace while the righteous suffered death. It was, however, by this means that God most faithfully answered the plea of this psalm for believers in the person and work of Jesus, performing the great work that saved us from our greatest enemies, sin, judgment, and death. As Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This means that the first and the great need of every single person, all of us being sinners, who deserve the judgment of God, is to look to Jesus in saving faith, confessing our sins, and believing in his cleansing blood. And if we do... We will no longer be the enemies of heaven. We will be the treasured ones of God, as Psalm eighty-three three says. And then, whatever dangers may face us, Asaph's greatest statement of faith, recorded in the first of his collection of psalms, will be ours as well, as Psalm 73.26 says. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Lord, you are so majestic your your love it baffles our minds your love is unfailing it is tied to your to your covenant character revealed in the word of god as second corinthians 120 says all the promises of god are yes and amen in christ they they find their completion in the person and work of Christ, the love of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. They all find their completion, their apex, their goal, their culmination, in the person and work of Christ. Lord, may we just sit for just a moment and marvel at your love, the love that you came under the sentence of death to pay this penalty for us this this love that that made us that opened eyes that opened ears this this great love whereby you loved us first when we were the most unlovable as romans 5 says you died for us your enemies at the right time by sending forth christ this is a this is an amazing grace God that that John Newton so aptly describes I was once a wretch I was once blind but now now I see Lord I pray that we would just sit and marvel for just a moment this week that we would sit and just marvel at this this amazing love that opens eyes opens ears that that turns rebels who are enslaved to sin and to friends of god that we would sit and and marvel at at the reality that we were bought out from the slave market of sin we were we were once under the kingdom of darkness as paul said in colossians 1 13 and yet now we are in the kingdom of the lord jesus what an amazing grace this is. What an amazing love that you loved us first. Lord, help us not only to reflect on this truth, but help it to go down deep and deep into our hearts. Not only to understand, yes, Lord, that you're holy and just and perfect and good in all of your ways, as we've talked about today, but help us just to sit and to marvel, to gaze, to ponder, to reflect, to, to really take home the truth of the love of God in Christ. This this love that even motivated you to come under the sentence of death to bear the full weight of the divine wrath of God the Father in our place and for our sin and to crush the head of the serpent as you promised in Genesis 3.15. Lord, help us to marvel at that grace and help us where we have forgotten to marvel at that grace help us to repent help us to take home this truth because it is the fuel for thankfulness and gratitude the, the very ground and the fuel for our holiness the very motivation the very power supply that you've given us for growth in the grace of god Lord, where we where we are anxious, where we are discouraged, where we have despair, Lord, may we sit and marvel again and again and again at the various ways in which you have purchased a people for your own possession and you have called them mine. Mine, mine, this one is mine, this one is mine, this one is mine. In fact, as Revelation says, there will be a myriad from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people in which you have called them yours, worshiping before the throne forever and ever. So, Lord, where we have forgotten that, may we repent. And may we marvel once again at the beauty and the glory of Christ. And may we continue all of our days marveling at the beauty and the honor and the glory of God in the person and work of Christ, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe